Okay, hello friends, and welcome to a new Chabura two-part series titled Reactions to Kabbalah, which will explore the history of the rabbinic reception of the Zohar in the 13th century. We're very excited to have JJ Kimchi with us and about our speaker. JJ Kimchi is a PhD ca candidate in the field of modern religious philosophy at Harvard University, where he spe specializes in the intersection between modern European philosophy and post-Enlightenment Jewish thought. His academic essays and translations have been published in both academic and popular venues. JJ received his undergraduate education at Shalem College, Jerusalem, where he double majored in Western philosophy and Jewish thought. Prior to that, he spent two years learning in Yeshiva Taratzion and completed his military service in the 101st Division of the IDF's Paratroopers Brigade. Born into a family of renowned British rabbis and educators, JJ has been intensely involved in Jewish education for the past 12 years. JJ currently serves as the Orthodox educator at MIT Hilo. Uh, with that said, it is also JJ's birthday today, so you want to wish him a happy birthday and many more years of health, happiness, and growth. Uh, we had the privilege of having JJ with us in the past. This is a very well-received series on Shadal, and I highly recommend all to check that out on our website. Um, also, as mentioned, this shoot is a member series. Uh, the first installment will be open to all, but the second will be for just our members. So for those who are not uh, yet, uh, make sure to, to join us and take advantage of all we have to offer. And uh, thank you so much, everyone, for being here. And it is a privilege and honor to have with us JJ Kimfi. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to start by saying, uh, by once again expressing my admiration for the Chabura and for all that it does. Um, and for those who run it and who spend innumerable hours um, you know, inviting speakers and proliferating excellent classes and knowledge throughout the Jewish world internationally is really something special to be part of. I myself am a member. I recommend everyone else to to follow uh, suit as well. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and of course, yes, thank you for your warm wishes. I can think of no better way to bring in my new annual cycle, my personal annual cycle, uh, than to teach and to spend time with with fine people such as yourselves. Um, okay, so just uh, before I begin, a couple uh, before I give my my slides and my lecture a couple of um, prefatory notes and remarks um, just to prepare you what we're going to do today and, and my general style of teaching um, and how we're going to approach the subject, the very interesting and intricate and, and in many ways difficult subject that we are going to try and focus on today. Um, so firstly, as you have noticed, I tend to speak very quickly. I apologize for that. Uh, that is very simple. There is an enormous amount of material to get through. Um, and also, I'm part of a generation which generally listens to things on YouTube at 1.5 or 2 speed. And therefore, I tend to mimic that. And therefore, I will be speaking relatively quickly and moving quickly through the material. Because really, today, we are trying to do the impossible, which is to um, encapsulate and talk intelligently about centuries and centuries of intellectual development um, over about a 45-minute period, which is going to be the length of the lecture. Um, and then, of course, I'll open up questions and discussions. And I'm happy to talk to anyone um, um, for as long as it takes. Um... So the second thing, uh, the second point that I'd like to uh, make is that I am both by nature and by training an academic um, in that I'm not a rabbi. I've had many uh, impressive and important rabbis and educators come to the Chabura. I'm not one among them. Um, I am a humble historian. Um, and therefore, the approach that I take generally is that of the historian um, and that of, um, you know, trying to present what we know, what we don't know, what we try to, um, you know, what we can deduce from the evidence and what we can perhaps guess from the lack thereof or, or from what we in fact have. Um, and therefore, you know, we're going to be talking about Jewish mysticism and specifically Kabbalah from an academic approach. For some, this might, you know, push you in one religious direction or another or inspire or, or provoke questions or whatever it is. That is all wonderful. And, you know, I very much encourage you to take this further. But that is not my role. My role is simply to try and, 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 uh, and uh, deal with the history of it. Um, 
Having said that, mysticism, the subject under what we're approaching today, is in fact presents a very unique problem for the historian. And it's important to, to notice that, which is that historians, of course, deal with what is, with the evidence that has been left over to us from the past, with texts, with objects, with, um, with all sorts of evidence that we have from previous centuries. Mysticism presents a unique problem precisely because, according to those who practice it, according to its own adherents and its own practitioners, um, mysticism is, or, or mystical schools seek specifically not to spread their word. They speak specifically not to leave behind too much of an indication of it, precisely what it is uh, they believe, or their doctrines, or their uh, modes of interpretation. Um, and therefore, it is somewhat difficult for a historian or an academic to approach the subject, um, because often the response will simply be, well, um, you know, obviously there is no evidence of X, or obviously there is little evidence of Y, uh, because the people who are engaging in this didn't wish to leave behind any evidence. Um, and therefore, that is uh, that is something that the historian must always bear in mind. Therefore, what we're going to be piecing together today, and generally in our discussions of this topic, have to be um, have to have that caveat in mind uh, um, um, all the time. Um, what and specifically, we're going to be discussing today a specific strain of Jewish mysticism, which is generally which arose in the medieval period, generally known uh, as Kabbalah, which is not identical with Jewish mysticism as a whole. This is a much larger and and richer subject that I have time to broach today. But it's very important to note that when one talks of Kabbalah, one talks of a, a quite discernible school which has certain motifs and certain um, and themes, such as the the SS Firat and the theurgic capacity of human beings, um, which is not identical to all versions and all different types of Jewish mysticism, and it, and it has you know differences from, let's say, Heichalot mysticism or Hasidic Ashkenaz, which is a 12th century, 11th, 12th century uh, phenomenon in, in uh, medieval uh, Central Europe. Um, and therefore, we're focusing on something very specific. And in general, we're, spoke, we're focusing today at the rise of Kabbalah and reactions to the Kabbalah, and very specifically, the form that it takes in the rise of reactions and, and negative reactions, specifically against the Zohar. Because the Zohar is an anthology or a corpus of texts which lies at the very heart, uh, which eventually, as we'll see soon, um, gained ascendancy and lies at the very heart of, of, um, of a medieval, that specific strain of Kabbalah. Um, and the difficulty really is um, that the Zohar came to the fore, it bubbled up to the surface between roughly the years 1280 and 1296, something like towards the end of the 13th century. Um, and then the question becomes a bibliographic question. Who wrote the Zohar? Who put it together? Whose ideas does it represent? Because the traditional view, um, as, as is claimed by the Zohar or, or by you know, those who in, immediately spread it and interpreted it, was that it faithfully recorded the views of a second century sage, namely Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and his immediate disciples, then it was put together by his immediate disciples, and, and therefore its um, its doctrines, its, um, its halachot, its legal pronunciations, its various um, statements of fact are to be taken with the canonical weight that we afford to other um, other parts of, let's say, early Tanaitic um uh, um, um, works or corpuses such as the Mishnah, such as the Halachic Midrashim, etc., which of course within Judaism is a very heavy, very strong weight. However, there are those, as we'll see from the very inception of the Zohar, who see the Zohar not in that light. You see the Zohar not as uh, faithfully uh, sort of reflecting or faithfully recording the words of the ancient sages, but rather actually as a medieval work, not only was it uh, disseminated in the late 13th century, it was in fact written by people who lived in the late 13th century, and therefore obviously its weight, the, the sort of um, the strength of the Tsar in terms of how it influences Jewish texts and Jewish ideas is commensurately much less if it is a late medieval text, because, you know, in the medieval period, we have an enormous amount of texts, uh, philosophical, anti-philosophical, um, uh, midrashic, and now, and now mystical of various ways, and therefore the question, the bibliographic question of what is the Zohar? 
where does it come from? Who wrote it? What kind of book is it? What kind of authority, what kind of weight ought to it have is actually a question that until today really lies um, at the very center of, of those who, uh, you know, very, is an important question within the Jewish religion and development of Jewish religion in general. Uh, and also in those grappling with questions surrounding the Jewish religion and the weight that mysticism ought to play or not to play, this is a very important question. So what we're going to try and do over the next 45 minutes or so is um, chart the, the the fantastic rise, the, the I would say, um, quite quick and extraordinary rise um, in the in those who um, the dissemination and the uh, authority given to the Zohar and the various pre-modern counter reactions or those who believe actually the Zohar wasn't what its proponents and adherents said it was and the circumstances of those two camps and, and, and the various claims and counter claims and we are going to go uh, through that so with that I'm going to begin the lecture and uh, I'm going to share my screen with my slideshows, with the, with the slideshow that I have here. Um, I generally like teaching with a slideshow. I find it, um, uh, you know, it helps helps certainly me concentrate. And also, I think it would help everyone else at the same time. Okay, Kabbalah and anti-Kabbalah. So what we're going to do over the next few minutes is have a very, very brief overview um, of the rise of Kabbalah, and specifically the Kabbalah surrounding the Zohar um, from, you know, the medieval period to the early modern, to the cusp of modernity itself. And next lecture, we're going to look at the Kabbalah during the era of the Enlightenment and the um, and you know and and, and onset of modernity itself. But in, initially, uh, these are very briefly the steps that ought to be um, understood. First is that the very various preludes to the onset of what we now call today Kabbalah, which, as I say again, is a very specific mystical strain of Jewish mysticism. Um, and and preludes, you know, there are points in the, in the Tanakh, for example, Ezekiel chapters one and chapter six, uh, the Talmudic period, the famous story of the four who entered the orchard, the Pardes, uh, and other such things. There is the Hechalot literature, which is a group of texts um, written roughly in the Talmudic period, though we're, we're a little bit unsure when they were written, um, uh, describing various sages ascending to the heavenly um, Hechalot, the palaces, and, and, and seeing all the um, uh, you know the fabulous visions that they had, and the Hasidic Ashkenaz, which I re- uh, which I already invoked of the 12th uh, century in uh, in Germany, 11th 12th century, um, and and the first stirrings of what we can actually see as recognizably Kabbalah comes from Provence in roughly the 12th century. Uh, names that we are familiar with are the Ra'avad, who is the same Ra'avad as the one who wrote the, um, the, the Hasagot, the glosses on the, the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam, uh, and his son Yitzhak Sagin Nahar, Yitzhak the Blind. Um, and also around then was written, likely also, a certain book called the Sefer HaBahir, which can really cl- claim to be the first um, absolutely uh, unequivocally Kabbalistic text, and the first one that also sets out in quite a bit of detail the central motif of medieval Kabbalah, which is the 10-stage hypostatic emanation of God to the, the, the stages between the Godhead, the, the sort of um, divinely um, abstract and transcendent Godhead, and the physical world itself. They claim there are 10 interlocking, interwoven, interrelating, and interreacting stages called the sephirot, the, the sort of um, these spheres of, of, um, of emanation. And that, again, was something that is, is really um, outlined for the very first time properly and, and fully in the Bahir. Um, which comes from roughly 12th century and likely Provence as well. Uh, the, the main centers of Kabbalah in 13th century um, go over to Spain. Again, this is a very, very brief overview. I'm not remotely trying to do justice. I'm just trying to set the historical uh, stage. Um, there are theories um, propounded by uh, Moshe Idel and others, Menachem Kellner, um, that much of 13th century Spanish Kabbalah is a counter-reaction to Maimonidean ra- uh, rationalism um, over here. Um, and there are a few different types, a few different schools or strains of Kabbalah ju- that we see during the 13th century. One is in the 
Catalonian uh, area, which is the mystical uh, circle surrounding the great figure Ramban or Nachmanides, who himself travels to Eretz Yisrael at a certain point, uh, but leaves behind three generations of, of students, of disciples who continue propounding his ideas. Again, because we have relatively few texts from this circle, we, you know, it's difficult to know exactly uh, a full worldview um, that they had. There is, of course, Castilia, the, um, the second um, mystical school, which slightly elsewhere in, in Spain. However, the one core text that it produced, namely the Zoharic anthology, which is essentially an anthology of, of exegesis and homiletics, um, and was originally written and circulated in fragments. And this is something very important. Until the advent of printing, the Zohar wasn't really a book per se. It was a series of fragments or pamphlets or booklets, uh, you might be said, of, of mystical exegesis of the Tanakh, which imagined a chavura, a, um, a sort of circle of mystics, again, from the second century uh, in Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and, and, his, uh, and his various, um, and, and those who surrounded him. Um, and this was circulated again, and this became, as we'll see over the fo- following few centuries, this eventually became the centerpiece of, of Jewish mysticism. However, during this time, this was, or I'll put it this way, scholars today think that the Zohar reflects a chabura of a similar chabura of, of, of mystics that existed in Castilla during the 13th century, and their mystical um, output is reflected, or, or that constituted eventually uh, the Zoharic text that we have today. Um, and there is also the prophetic or linguistic school, which is the school of Abraham Abulafia. Once again, I don't have time to go into that, but it's, it's important to note that you have these three, I would say, major strains of Kabbalah going on at the time, and it's not clear at all that one of them would um, be any more popular or, any, or would be any more widespread than any of the others. It so happens, of course, that the second school, the Castilian school, the, the Zoharic school, would eventually um, come to dominate, as we shall later see. Um, so for a few centuries, the Zohar continues to circulate, mainly in Spain, also a little bit overseas, but among fairly small groups of Kabbalists. Again, this is prior to printing. Um, this is prior to uh, the expulsion from Spain, as we'll see. Um, and therefore, the Zohar was only known to, to relatively small circles of scholars. And therefore, we don't have the kind of polemics pro-Zohar and anti-Zohar that we're going to see, um, we're going to see later. In general, there are, you know, we only have fragments of writings of approving and non-approving of the Zohar, and we're going to see that very soon. Um, um, however, post-1492, post that was the major date uh, in which everything changed, because um, the, obviously this was the date of the Girush Sfarad, the expulsion of many tens of thousands of Jews from Spain, and, and that was the point in which Spanish scholars and scholarly circles and mystical circles, um, you know, were obviously expelled. Some of them went to Italy, some of them went to various parts of the Ottoman Empire, some of them went eventually to Eastern Europe, some of them went to um, Eretz Israel, and that was really the time that their doctrines and their ideas spread all over the world. Um, this was greatly aided, of course, by printing. Printing was an extraordinary technology for two reasons. Firstly, obviously, the Zohar and Zoharic texts can be uh, could be much more quickly disseminated, we more quickly spread throughout the entire world, and this is very important, and more, more cheaply and more efficiently as well. But more importantly, actually, when the Zohar was printed, we now finally have a final version of the entire Zoharic corpus, or, or at least a, a fixed version, a canonical version. Until this point, the Zohar, as I said, not only um, was circulated in manuscripts, it was also considered what scholars today call a live text. And what I mean by a live text is a text that various scholars, you know, wherever they are found, added and subtracted parts of the Zohar. And that's why pre-printing manuscripts of the Zohar that we have are substantially different one from another. And um, if you ask, you know, people who worked on this, Daniel Matt or Daniel Abrams or others, they'll tell you, yeah, we have lots of different um, forms of the Zohar, versions of the Zohar, because people uh, would take the liberty of adding or subtracting uh, parts of the Zohar during the centuries prior to printing. Um, and therefore that leads to um, difficulty to know what exactly is part of the Zohar corpus, what isn't. Printing 
I wouldn't say solves this problem, but it goes a long way towards standardizing the text. And it's the same with the biblical text. And of course, it takes us too far afield, but this is an important uh, part to know. Um, oh, and another thing I, I should mention, post-1942, there is a, a famous um, claim by Gershom Sharon in the 20th century that, that the Zoharic um, the, the Zoharic worldview, including its theodicy, its its um, its explanation of what the significant of catastrophe and catastrophic events that that according to him was more satisfactory than philosophical rationalism or any other Jewish worldview, and that was why it was adopted by exiles from from Spain. In other words, according to Shalom, it was the the catastrophe, the um, violent ending of the the, the golden, or rather the um, the Spanish Jewish center that brought about an adoption of the Zohar, not just because the scholars were spread out, not just because of printing, all these helped, but also because it was more ideologically um, helpful to conceive of catastrophic events through a Zoharic and Kabbalistic lens than it was through other lenses. And that's why it caught on like wildfire. This is, is hotly disputed by Boshi Ideal and others, but this is a very important theory that is worth knowing. Um, this is, uh, it was helped in the 15th and 16th century by the rise of Christian Hebraism. Um, again, this is the, the uh, a wave, a small wave, but nonetheless a discernible wave of um, Christian scholars, mainly in Italy and in Central Europe, who um, who suddenly became very interested in Hebraism, and Hebraic culture, and Hebraic texts. And central to this was the Kabbalah, um, the, the famous um, Italian Renaissance humanist uh, Giovanni Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, and others suddenly um, became enormously interested in Kabbalistic texts, and therefore. In, in, it gained a level, measure of intellectual respectability. Um, and of course, a part of the 16th century a rise of Kabbalah was the activity in Tzfat. Tzfat, uh, the city of the land of Israel, became a, a textile um, an economic powerhouse very quickly, almost overnight, um, and attracted several scholars and including mystics. And there was an enormous hype of activity and, you know, uh, th- those who may be familiar with the history there. Uh, but two major things happened in Tzfat during that time with regard to the Zohar and the, and the Kabbalistic thought in general. One of them is that it became systematized. You had uh, figures like Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, who decided to try and make a discernible, fairly logical system out of the rather haphazard texts of the Zohar and make it into a doctrine that was, you know, that could be uh, um, understood and analyzed and applied. And also because of the activities of Isaac Luria, or Yitzhak Luria, the Ari, there became a, a, they came along a drastic expansion of the Zoharic Kabbalah and, you know, many other facets to that particular ideology, making it a much larger, much richer and and, and deeper uh, worldview in many ways, which has continued to, to assert influence throughout the Jewish world today, as we'll get to a little bit later. Um, and this, of course, very important point in the 16th century. 16th century also saw... Um, Kabbalistic practices seeping into halachic considerations. Now, I'm not going to go through this uh, entirely, and I'm sure other speakers of the Chaburah have talked about um, the interaction between Kabbalah and halacha, but this is important to know that about the 16th century, Rabbi Yosef Karo and others, this became a point in which um, the Kabbalistic uh, ideas or practices started seeping into halachic texts and halachic norms. Again, a partial acceptance, a partial rejection. This is very complex and quite... um, uh, quite fine uh, distinctions that must be drawn here. Uh, but, you know, just uh, if you give an example, if you open up Maimonides' um, account of what one should do when you wake up in the morning, so according to Maimonides, you wake up in the morning and you immediately start saying brachot. You immediately start saying blessings. Uh, you open your eyes, you say one blessing, you stand up, you say another blessing. You immediately, you can you can immediately start a uh, blessing. Whereas the Shulchan Aruch, the work by Rabbi Yosef Karo, again, 16th century Tzfat, um, you have to, it says that you first have to wash your hands because you have this impure spirit resting on your hands while you sleep. Again, an idea flowing from Kabbalah 
Kabbalistic text that made its way into um, into the uh, into the halachic corpus. And finally, this uh, with this very brief overview, um, that of course the the uh, works of Yitzhak Luria and the expansion of the Zohar in various specific directions uh, led to or, or formed the basis, constituted the basis of an ideology that was taken by Shabtai Tzvi and his major theologian uh, Nathan of Gaza. And, and and became a sort of a messianic uh, cult in and of its own, or, or messianic movement in and of its own uh, uh, regard. And um, that certainly led to a counter-reaction, as we shall see with Yaakov Emden and others, um, and, and the suspicion of certain forms of Kabbalah. But this, on one very brief slide, you can see the... Um, the, the the authorship of the Zohar in the late 13th century, it's very slow progress throughout the 14th, 15th centuries. And suddenly in the late 15th and 16th century and onwards, you have this very rapid, very quick spreading of the Zohar, both in terms of the spreading of its doctrines and also its acceptance uh, on the part of many scholars uh, throughout the Jewish world and therefore became a force to be reckoned with within Jewish uh, Jewish life and Jewish practice and Jewish ideas. So let's take a look for the next, um, for a little bit about uh, skepticism or at least counter reactions that we can discern by, uh, you know, significant and important figures throughout the Jewish world. So the very earliest, uh, very earliest centuries we can see Kabbalah was not so widespread and therefore, as I mentioned, criticism of the Kabbalah was similarly limited in scope. However, we do have some fragments. I'm going to show you a very interesting piece uh, in the shooting of the Rivash, Rabbi Yitzhak Bar Sheshet uh, Perfet, who was uh, 14th century. And he says the following, one of his shutim, one of his halachic um, um, works, where he says the following. Uh, he mentions the, the Kabbalists and, and mentions some of their um, practices, and he's not sure about this. And he says, also in the prayer of the 18 benedictions, the Shemona Esrei, the Kabbalists have a specific sphira to which they do, towards which they direct their intentions for each and every blessing. All this is exceedingly bizarre in my eyes, zar ma'od be'enai, as one who's not a Kabbalist like them. There are also those who believe this to be a polytheistic doctrine. And I have already heard one of the philosophically inclined, Hamid Palsafim, denigrate the Kabbalists, saying that the idolaters believe in, uh, the Christians, they believe in three gods, whereas the Kabbalists believe in ten gods. Now, this is a very famous line and an accusation that's throwing the Kabbalists. In other words, they're saying that, okay, the, the Christians against whom we fight a theological battle every day, they took the one god and split him into three, and you, Kabbalists, very nice, you've taken the one god and split him into ten, into ten spherot, or ten aspects, or attributes, or emanations uh, of God himself. Now, this is, um, again, the Rivash is not saying this outright. He is quoting I would say semi-approvingly, but he's certainly quoting um, one of, you know, someone who is philosophically inclined. He doesn't then say, oh, this is nonsense or this is, you know, this is not to be, uh, you know, this is not to be taken seriously. Rather, he goes and he has to find a Kabbalist who explains to him why this is not exactly the case and what exactly the spirit are, et cetera, et cetera. But we can see here at least evidence of philosophically inclined people in the, 30, the early, 40, early 1400s, the early 15th century, who see Kabbalah as theologically problematic. Okay. Now, there are other very important historical um, testaments that we have towards the um, towards the, the problematic nature of uh, the Kabbalah and specifically the Zohar. And I'm talking now about the Sefer Yuchasin. The Sefer Yuchasin is a collection of histories and genealogies. It was written roughly year 1504 by a man called Avram Zakuto. It was only uh, printed much later. Um, however, the first edition prints the testimony of a man called Yitzchak Demin Ako, or Isaac of Akko, 
who uh, affirms that there were many uh, opinions, different opinions in Spain at the time, the late, the, the late 13th century. So this is after pamphlets of the Kabbalah, have, uh, pamphlets, sorry, of the Zohar have started to be disseminated, have started to be considered by various Spanish scholars. And some were divided. Some said, oh, wow, this is amazing. This is the true record of the sayings and doings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his school. Whereas others would say, no, that this is actually um, you know, something written and spread by a man called uh, Moshe de Leon, but actually uh, it's just his own, his own work. Um, and therefore he traveled actually to, to Avila, which is the place that Moshe de Leon lived, and tried to, uh, and tried to buy of him that the manuscript from which he claimed to have copied the, the Zohar. In other words, Moshe de Leon said, yes, I'm writing the, you know, fragments of this uh, Zoharic Kabbalistic text. However, I'm copying it from a manuscript that has been copied, that has been copied, that has been copied, that has, has its origin in uh, second century in the life of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So he travels to Avila. However, Moshe de Leon by that time had died. And Moshe de Leon's widow assures him, assures uh, Yitzhak Zemin Akko, that there is in fact no ancient manuscript. And that her husband told her that he wrote it of her of his own accord, um, for financial gain. Um, and that was um, um this and that was, you know, that's really what the Zohar was, just Moshe de Leon's own general ideas and own mystical imaginings, but it wasn't actually um, um, truly copied from an ancient manuscript. And this evidence um, is there. Now, this evidence is sitting in the Sefer Yuchasin from the 1500s. How reliable is it? I mean, again, it's the, it, it is a copy of a, of a diary entry of a man, you know, Yitzhak Zemin Akka, who lives in the early 1300s. It is, you know, his own testimony of his travels. And it's the testimony of Moshe de Leon's wife and daughter, both of them, who said that their husband had told them that there was no ancient manuscript. Is this very good historical evidence? The answer is this is obviously a, you know, a question that's fiercely debated among historians. Some say, yes, this is, you see here in black and white, Moshe de Leon's own uh, admission or his wife's own admission that actually, no, there was no manuscript. He was just, you know, just uh, um, um, writing things of his own, off of his own head. Um, whereas, of course, others would say, no, that this is a, a very unreliable train of historical transmission. Uh, and therefore, this evidence is not to be taken uh, into consideration. But nonetheless, the reason I bring it here is you at least have some indication in the 1300s, there are at least one person, i.e. Yitzhak Zemin Akko, who uh, expressed the uh, the skepticism or at least recorded skepticism about the origins of the Zohar and about its antiquity and authority um, that has been expressed. And that was, um, you know, th- that existed during the 1300s already in the very early stages of the Zoharic uh, transmission and study. Okay, now let's take a look. Now, um, over the next few centuries, before the rise of the Enlightenment and general skepticism of the Zohar, there are three and only three um, scholars who wrote treaties that we have, that we know of, that excellent treaties, um, that call into question specific uh, or, or specifically undermine the antiquity or the authority of the Zohar and its and its Kabbalistic teachings. Some do it partially, some do it um, sort of entirely. I'm going to look at each one of them in turn, um, because each one of them are very important, and each one adds another layer of I would say this rabbinic anti-Kabbalistic understanding, um, which I would argue forms its own specific school of thought. Um, again, all this being in the pre-modern era. So the very first that we're going to look at is a man called Eliyahu del, Medi- del, um, del Medigo. I don't know why I've written Megiddo up here, um, but it is Elijah del Medigo. Um, and, and, and he was... A, um, a Jewish Aristotelian thinker. So he was a late philosopher. Again, his dates, uh, he died in 1493. So this is right at the end of the 15th century. Um, and he was a, a follower of Maimonides, Neverowes. Um, and he, in fact, was um, a close and was a, a sort of a chavruta and even a tutor to several of these Italian Hebraic intellectuals, including Mirandola, including uh, Johannes Reuchlin and others. Um, 
and and he wrote so he so towards the end of his life he saw the spread of Kabbalah he saw that how it was slowly gaining credence throughout Italy and he decided um, uh, and other places and he decided he was going to write a philosophical treatise firstly justifying um, a sort of philosophically oriented and sophisticated Judaism and secondly attacking those forces that he believed to be um, undermining the possibility of having a philosophically sophisticated Judaism, principally among those, the Kabbalists and their central uh, document, the Sefer HaZohar. Um, so he wrote a treatise called Bechinat Hadat, it was written in Crete in 1490, um, and he wrote that he believed that Kabbalah ran contrary both to philosophical Judaism, but also to mainstream Talmudic Judaism. Again, don't forget that Kabbalah, and specifically the Zoharic Kabbalah, is a very bold um, system of ideas and system of exegesis. It really, um, you know, it makes very extraordinary claims about God, extraordinary claims about how the world works, about how creation happens, um, about the function of mitzvot, etc. Again, this is not the time to flesh out those doctrines, but it's important to note that, that they, they constitute a very, let's say, different worldview from both, well, not different, but a very extensive worldview that stands to a certain degree apart from both Talmudic and philosophically inclined Judaism. So what did he claim against the authenticity of the Zohar? Well, firstly, he noted and he was, again, at the very earliest, that the, Zoh- the Zohar was absent from rabbinic or medieval texts. In other words, if Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai generally wrote or was responsible for um, a, a you know important mystical tract, an esoteric tract um, called the Zohar, one would expect to find some reference somewhere in the Talmud, in the Midrashim, in Rashi or Ramban or Rambam or any or any of the Goonim or any of the earlier thinkers, and there's not one word mentioned about it ever at any point. There's a complete absence. Now, again... Is it legitimate to draw historical conclusions from absence of evidence? That's a difficult question. And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. But he points out that this astonishing absence of the Tsar medieval and rabbinic texts um, is an indication against its antiquity. Okay, um, there are anachronisms in the Tsar. Anachronisms means uh, it means that there are points in the Tsar which belong actually to a different age, right? So, for example, the Zohar quotes frequently uh, Amoraim, right? Those who live in the Talmudic, a third and fourth century. Um, fifth century uh, Babylonia, which would have been very difficult to do had it been written in second century Eretz Israel by Roshun Bayochai and his students. In other words, it's quoting rabbis who lived theoretically many centuries later. Um, the the main thing that that uh, Del uh, Del Medigo was very upset about is that he. Um, is that he believed, again, and this you can see this in Rambam and many other Jewish um, philosophers of the day, that he believed that the Aristotelian system of science and, and metaphysics and philosophy, um, he believed this to be something like a settled science. He believed this to be to accurately describe the way the world works physically and metaphysically. And therefore, um, he believed that any system that attacked the, an Aristotelian form of Judaism was, again, um, um, just philosophically and scientifically unsound. It was something that was leading him backwards, away from the truth and towards a discredited neoplatonic uh, understanding of the world. Again, I wish this was a five or ten part series I could really go into detail. Um, is not the place to go into neoplatonism right now, but it's important to note that in general, Jewish uh, philosophy of the medieval period period relied principally on on neo-aristotelian uh, views as reflected and refracted by muslim and christian thinkers whereas mystical ideas specifically kabbalah and many other mystical uh, and, and sufi islam and, and, and other um strains principally saw neoplatonism as developed in the early centuries of the common era as the main philosophical model that they were working off again i don't have time to, to get into it but basically he saw this as a step in the wrong direction scientifically uh, ideologically and philosophically um he also saw as heretical and this is actually important 
heretical, the notion of the theurgic power of human activity. The theurgic power, I mean that the human beings have the possibility of completing an action here on this earth and having a discernible effect in the heavens, right? Kabbalists believe that if a human being does a good deed here on earth, so then it affects a, a tikkun, a, a kind of rectification of the the spherot of the of the sort of um, of the worlds of the the upper realms which include the ten spherot and it actually brings them closer together and heals them so human beings are in effect so to speak helping god by healing the the, the supernal realms of the um, of the spherot and that's why you know um, many communities before like, before doing various mitzvot before performing something or, or praying they'll say something like l'shem yichud kudsha b'richo ushchinte that I'm doing this why because I'm trying to affect this theurgic um, activity of uniting God and His shechina in other words uniting different parts different elements of the spherotic um, ecosystem or ecology with each other bringing harmony where there is in fact disharmony in the upper realms and for a an Aristotle and a strict philosopher like uh, Del Medigo, this was uh, heretical. What do you mean? Human beings can help God? Human beings can bring perfection to an already perfected realm? This is nonsense. He didn't, all, all of this in his eyes was complete heresy. Um, and, and this was, this formed the basis of philosophical um, um, opposition to uh, the Zohar and the Kabbalah. Uh, unfortunately, this book was published only in 1629 uh, and, and did not really achieve a widespread impact. Um, and therefore, it had to wait till the, the next two scholars um, um, in order to really uh, have a, a sort of serious tradition of Kabbalah skepticism, which we're going to go on to now. So who are the next two? So the next one is, um, already in the early modern period, Leon de Modena. Um, hang on, let me get myself out of, out of his face. Um, um, so Leon de Modena, or Yehuda Ari of Modena, was really one of the most extraordinary rabbinic figures of the early um of the early modern period, he was the rabbi or, or one of the major rabbis in the Italian uh, ghetto in Venice. That's where he lived most of his life. Um, and he was an extraordinary, uh, I would call a Renaissance man. In other words, he was a man of business and a man, an intellectual and, you know, did all sorts of things and an author and a publisher and, and, and a sort of financier and just one of these people dabbled in all sorts of um all sorts of endeavors to, to, to varying levels of, of success. In other words, some of his endeavors really weren't particularly successful at all. Uh, but one of the things impressively that he was, was he was the rabbi and preacher of the Venice ghetto. And in fact, apparently he was so successful uh, that his drashot, his sermons were so well received that various cr- members of the Christian intelligentsia, including priests, used to come into the ghetto in order to hear him speak. That he was... Um, you know, considered a, a religious preacher of brilliant uh, capability, and this was appreciated beyond the bounds of the Jewish community. Um, he witnessed the rise of Kabbalah, and specifically Zohar Kabbalah, both in Jewish circles and, as I mentioned before, in Christian circles. Um, the the problem was a few problems. Firstly, he, as as you know, Baal Halacha, as, as, as a halachist, um, was very concerned about the encroachment of Kabbalah on Halacha. He saw this as the interpol or, or the um, usurpation of the authority of the halakha from a sort of alien um, um, body of text. He also was concerned about the anti-Maimonidean uh, uh, sort of ideas and, um, and and activities of the Kabbalists. And most of all, or well, perhaps not most of all, but certainly very importantly, was his... Um, his his skepticism or his active opposition towards the use of Kabbalah by Christian missionaries in order to tempt Jews away from Judaism and and to the baptismal font. Um, and again, this was in fact the case. You know, many um, Christian Hebraists, or in fact, I would say pretty much all of them, um, they weren't of pure intention. This wasn't a movement uh, which sought to uh, understand Hebraism or sought to um, sort of uh, gain knowledge for knowledge's sake. Rather, they sought to um, validate Christianity through Jewish texts and specifically through. Um, Kabbalistic texts. 
Kabbalah, Kabbalah specifically the Zohar, as providing absolute validation for the the, the, sort of the mission and the rise of, of Christ and the, the Trinity of the Godhead, etc. Um, and therefore, this this and many Jews actually became. Um, you know, became heretics or became uh, apostates due to this and came back and tried to convince other fellow Jews into the similar apostasy and conversion towards Christianity based on their readings of the Kabbalah. And therefore, you saw Kabbalah and the authority given to the Kabbalah as dangerous for his um, for, for the surrounding Jewish community. And therefore, he wrote a book, one of many, many books that he wrote um, called the Ari Nohem. It's a very good book by a Princeton professor um, um, called Jacob Dweck on the Ari Nohem and the surrounding and, and the, um, the Kabbalah, or, or rather the the uh, intellectual ferment surrounding that and Moderna's life, it's, it's well worth reading Jacob Dweck's book. Um, and anyway, so he makes a series of claims here, and this was a far more thorough, and in fact, book-length series of objections to the Zohar went much further than uh, Del uh, uh, Medigo went uh, in his previous works. So firstly, he expanded on the anachronisms, pointed out by Del Medigo and by Azaria Dorossi, another important Italian intellectual. Um, and this includes um, references in the Zohar to medieval prayers, such as Nishmat Kolchai and other medieval prayers, and also to specific world events. For example, the, the Zohar descri- describes quite um, vividly, although it doesn't call it by name, the rise of the Ishmaelite kingdom, i.e. the rise of Islam, and the spread of Islam, and the conquest of Islam over the entire uh, Middle East. Again, that happened in the 7th century. How can it be that a 2nd century text would talk about an event that happened five centuries later? Um um, oh, sorry, I doubled that line. Um, he also pointed out several halachic contradictions between the Zohar and the Talmud. This is something that people, um, are, or that's not generally so well known, which is that the Zohar is actually to a, to to quite a bit of a, a degree a text which includes halachic um, um, decisions or halachic proclamations which are put in the mouths of these various Tanaim. And the problem is that some of these halachic uh, uh, positions are in fact in contradiction to the Talmud. I mean, one very famous and quite... Um, controversial statement by the Zohar is that anyone who puts on tefillin on Chol HaMoed is Chayav Mita, is, is, um, is, to be, is liable to be put to death. Now, I wear tefillin on Chol HaMoed. I'm, I'm you know, part of an Ashkenazi Jewish community, and, um, and there are many others who do so, and there is a perfectly halachic legitimate statement according to the exoteric, the non-mystical uh, halachic tradition that we have. However, according to the Zohar, that is absolutely horrendous and beyond the bounds of any, um, uh, you know, of acceptability. And again, the contradictions between the, the halachic as we have it in the exoteric, the non-mystical text, and the Zohar, that is seems to be um, a serious point against taking the Zohar as an authoritative text. Um, the language of the Zohar, and the Zohar is written in an Aramaic, which, um, again, during the second century, during the time of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Aramaic was the language of everyday commoners, of the language that everyone spoke, and therefore it wouldn't have made so much sense to write a mystical tract in that language, because everyone spoke it, everyone knew it. In fact, it was the... Um, was halachic and, and, and biblical Hebrew that was considered the language or the plaything of, of scholars, of, of great rabbinic scholars, and therefore all rabbinic texts at the time are written in Hebrew. However, in the 13th century, by the time Moshe de Leon and the, the Kabbalists of, of Castilian in the 13th century come along, Aramaic is, is quite a, an unusual language, the language really of Talmudic scholars, and therefore it makes perfect sense in the 13th century to write an, an esoteric tract that is to be hidden from the eyes of the ordinary people in a language they didn't really understand, i.e. the language of Aramaic. But also, it's quite a late Aramaic, a post-Talmudic Aramaic as well. We won't go into that for the time being. Um, Modena was also bothered by the self-glorification of Rosh Hashim Bar Yochai. There are some very extraordinary statements in the Zohar, which again, don't really have time to go into, but 
uh, that seem to portray Rishim Bayochai as, and again, I hate to say it, a kind of demi-god, a sort of semi-divine figure, um, or, or, or at the very least semi-divine, um, in the Zohar. And again, this seems to be very odd, especially if Rishim Bayochai substantively wrote the Zohar, to have self-glorification and even self-quasi-deification of Rishim Bayochai in that text seems, again, in the eyes of Modena, to be, um, to be a point against it. I must interject here that all of these points have been disputed by those who have written books to defend Kabbalah. And we're going to see, see uh, you know, a few of them in a moment. But it's important to know that these are the objections. And of course, there are ways possibly to try and answer these objections. Um, but you know, these are the objections that are brought. Um, however, what's interesting is that Ari Nohem, meaning Demodena, was um, very much entranced and, and captivated by the beauty and the creativity of the Zohar. In other words, he's saying, listen, what we have here is a medieval midrash that has problematic theology and that has various anachronisms, et cetera, et cetera, and halachic inaccuracies. However, he says this is a very beautiful midrashic text. It's a text that is, you know, stands at the very peak of the very pinnacle of Jewish creativity from the medieval period. And interestingly, I mean, this is just sort of by the by, but this is a very sharp distinction, even nowadays, um, among Kabbalah skeptics. In other words, there's some people who say, listen, the Zohar is not from Rishon Bar it's, it's a medieval text. However, look how brilliant it is. Look how beautiful it is. Look how extraordinary the text is. You know, if it is written in the medieval period, it is certainly a crowning victory, crowning glory of the medieval period. Whereas there are those other Kabbalah skeptics or anti-Kabbalistic uh, um, um, you know, thinkers and, and um uh, and, and uh, writers who say something like, ah, it's from the 13th period and also it has lots of problematic parts to it, which, you know, we, we don't even think it's a good text. It shouldn't exist in the Jewish canon, not only because of its late dating, but also because it's just, it, it, it doesn't stand up to what we think are the standards, either the aesthetic standards or the moral standards or the theological standards or or the halachic standards of what we would call a text within the Jewish canon. Um and and the several authors, so, so the Arino hymn was actually circulated, was printed, and and was quite well known among Europe and, and seen as you know um, a very serious challenge to the Kabbalah. And various others uh, responded to it, including the Ramchal Moshe Chaim Lutzato uh, in 18th century Italy wrote his own little dialogue called Choker um, Umekubal, a dialogue between a researcher, so to speak, and Umekubal directly um, in order to answer these. Um, you know, you know, these challenges, these uh, points set out by Leon de Modena, whether he was successful or not, again, is subject for another time, whether he was, he, you know, provided satisfying counter objections uh, um, is, is something we can perhaps discuss another point. But again, this was finally the first book length, seriously taken point of, um, um, you know, serious Kabbalah and Zohar skepticism voiced in the Jewish world that we have, uh, that we have today. And finally, the third and final and greatest uh, and most extensive of the pre-modern skeptics of the Kabbalah and, and or certain elements specifically of the Zohar Kabbalah was my own um, uh, ancestor, Yaakov Emden, a great rabbi from the 18th century Germany. Um, um, so he was a, a well-known, a, a leading rabbinic figure, a brilliant halachist and, and you know, a prolific author, um, also a leading polemicist. He would write on anything and everything. He was a, a very um, uh, considerable heresy hunter in post-Sabbatean Europe. He had this famous controversy with uh, Jonas and Ibershitz and other, uh, and other senior, uh, other rabbinic figures and other uh, senior um, um, uh, members of the Jewish world. Uh, interestingly, part of Yerachel prolific nature came from the fact that he actually had, this is one of my favorite facts about him, he had a printing press in his own house. So he might have been the, the sort of precursor of all modern bloggers, right? Nowadays, any idiot with an internet connection can just put their opinion out there and just have it circulate. Yerachel uh, Emden, of course, you know, not an idiot, a great man, but nonetheless, he had an idea, had an opinion, wrote it up, printed it in his own house, 
and disseminated it across Europe. Um, and that's why his books are, you know, one of the reasons why they received such a large audience. Um, now, what's interesting about Yahweh Enden was that he himself was a Kabbalist, quite an enthusiastic Kabbalist. Um, there's an excellent article recently brought out in the Harvard Theological Review by a, a brilliant young, um, well, yeah, older than me, a, a, a scholar called Tamara Morsel Eisenberg, a, a professor, I think, of, of Jewish studies at y, uh, NYU, um, on Yahweh Enden as both a Kabbalist and an anti-Kabbalist. He was a very complicated figure because on the one hand, many of his works reflected the fact that he relied on Kabbalistic themes, thought Kabbalah was this ancient, esoteric, important doctrine right at the heart of Judaism, on the one hand. But on the other hand, he clearly saw the danger of Kabbalah because he was one of the prime heresy hunters of the Sabbateans and, and, and the post-Sabbatean Europe, who again relied on Kabbalah. So on the one hand, he needed it. And on the other hand, he recognized this tremendous danger and, and possibility for misuse among Jews in Europe. And that was... Um, that led him to write the Mipachat Sfarim, a book that he wrote in Alton in 1768, which was, until that point, the most extensive and the most wide-ranging work of Kabbalah skepticism um, until that point, uh, until we'll, we'll get to next week. So um, so he, it was a very interesting point. As I said, he himself was a Kabbalist and therefore couldn't completely get rid of the Zohar. He couldn't um, um, shifted entirely from his bookshelf. So therefore, what he did was he advocated that actually there is a core text of the Zohar, a, a, a sort of um, a, an ancient, uh, pure, mystical, and unsullied um, um, core, which which you know is legitimate and does reflect the, the Kabbalah of the ancient period in Rosh Bar Yochai. However, um, according to him, large portions of the Zohar contain very obvious um very obvious uh, indications of having been written at later dates some during the Gaonic period some during um sort of the early medieval period some by Moshe de Leon himself um and it's quite a complex view that he advocates there uh, but essentially he he brought in several other considerations which previous writers which uh, de Modena and Medigo um, had not um brought in yet uh, one was he see, he noticed the influence of iberian spanish and other romance languages in the zohar and, and, and specific word plays and the most famous of which the famous um pun in the zohar which it calls a synagogue which it calls a a, a, a bet knesset calls a bet filah an eshnoga right a burning flame and this has been pointed out by many that Eshnoga in medieval Spanish, in the Spanish that of Mojdiran lived, Eshnoga is was Esnoga, uh, which is Spanish for a synagogue. In other words, it's making a pun in medieval Spanish about the nature of a synagogue, which of course is a very clear indication of at least that passage in the Zohar being uh, uh, of much later vintage. Um, Yaakov Emden, who was of course you know, extremely knowledgeable in the entire Jewish canon, uh, certainly in medieval philosophy, he noted that parts of the Zohar adopted medieval philosophy specifically from Shmuel Hanagid and from Yehuda Halevi and other um, sort of non-rationalist or not not specifically rationalist Jewish uh, philosophers. And their elements sometimes really almost copied and pasted um, appear in the Zohar itself. Um, he noticed also that this is, it's a very odd document because it keeps making various claims about Eretz Israel, but it seems that those who who wrote the Zohar never never went to Eretz Israel because it kept on positing various topographical geographical facts that seem to just be untrue. How far one thing is from another, um, what is next to each other, what what a certain place looks like, and and it just seems that you know again. This is a mystical text, an esoteric text. Who knows what is really being said? But if you read it in its plain language, it seems to make all sorts of errors um, about Eretz Yisrael. And, and again, which is fully understandable if it was written by one person or by a group of mystics who didn't actually live in Eretz Yisrael. It'd be very weird if if those who lived in Eretz Yisrael made uh, errors of that point. Um, 
He also didn't like the Zohar's exegesis. Now, this is the big difference between Yaakov Emden and Leon de Modena, which is that, that Modena was very charmed by the, the Zohar. He liked it. He thought it was brilliant. He thought the exegesis was, was beautiful and very poetic and very um, admirable. He, Yaakov Emden remained entirely uncharmed by the Zohar. He really thought that, um, that there were many exaggerated or implausible readings of the biblical verses. And finally, and this is perhaps one of the most important points that's picked up by Shadan and other later um, um, uh, um, um, skeptics of the Kabbalah, is that Yaakov Emden noted that the, that the, um, the Zohar relies on the, on biblical vocalizations. I mean, kudot and ta'amim, what I mean is the uh, the vowels of the Bible and the cantillation marks, the way what the trap, the way one uh, reads it in the synagogue. Um, and, and these are said, stated out loud, stated specifically in the Zohar. It, it states the names of the vowels, it states the names or the, or the way in which appears certain cantillation marks. And what's fascinating is, is that According to rabbinic tradition, these cancellation marks and these uh, uh, vowels, etc., go back to uh, Sinai or, or some cells instituted by Ezra, etc. However, by the 16th century, you had a grammarian called uh, Elijah Levita or Eliyahu Habachor, um, a leading sort of 16th century um, an important grammarian who lived in Italy, who wrote a book called Masorah Hamasoret, Masorat Hamasoret, who in his third introduction more or less proved quite convincingly, that these vowels, which were never mentioned in, in the um, rabbinic literature, you'll never find a Gemara which says, oh, here is a komatz, here is a patach, here is whatever. In fact, the Gemara and, and other and Midrashim frequently dispute how to read the biblical text, which doesn't make sense if you have vowels in front of you. But no, do you read it like this or do you read it like that? That is very frequent, very common in the in the uh, Talmud. And that's because, um, again, this is the, the idea of, of Elijah Levita, and this is generally the consensus of modern academics as well, is that the specific systems of vowels and cantillations only came uh, post-Talmudically, probably uh, in Tiberia, uh, by what's called the Anshay Tiberia, or the Masoretes uh, of Tiberius, uh, between about the 6th and the 9th century. Um, and and Riyadh Emden says, look, you have Zohar, who, which mentions the vowels and mentions the cantillation marks, and this is unlike any other piece of rabbinic literature we have, because they didn't have those during the, the time of the, the time of the time of Mishnah, and therefore this also points to a later dating of the Zohar. Now, this is a very important historical document, because this is the very first time that a universally recognized rabbinic heavyweight gives strong backing to Zohar skepticism, okay? And this is an important stage because this gives it genuine um, a sort of a stamp of rabbinic approval in a way and also makes it at least an intellectually uh, a respectable position to say that large parts of the Zohar, at the very least, are later um, interpolations and, and, you know, if you want to call them forgeries. Now, this is now this can be seen. Now, many later senior rabbinic figures were not willing to say out loud, not willing to state very bluntly what Emden had stated. However, they were willing... To, to reference him. I'll give you an example here from the Shud Khatam Sofer. Of course, the Khatam Sofer was a uh, very important, one of the most important early modern rabbis, uh, late 18th century. Um, and he wrote the following in one of his Shutim. And I'm not going to give the background and context where we're running out of time. I want to take some questions. Um, but he, he speaks, uh, he's talking about um, someone who doesn't trust the Zohar. We find in your in your area, he says to his... Uh, to his interlocutor, Sefer Mitpachat Sfarim, the, the work of the Mitpachat Sfarim, Lemoreno Haravi Yaivetz, that was the Yaakov Emden, Yaakov Ben Svi, Timtza Sham, you'll find that there, Ki Davar Gadol, hang on, sorry, I lost it, so yeah, Ki Davar Gadol, Davar Hanavi, Zal, Be'inyan Zal, you'll find something extraordinary, something that is Davar Navi, that is almost prophetic utterance there, Halo Ze Yishtomemu Ro'av, this is something that will astonish all those who read it, 
uh, um, and, and that and that should suffice for those who know what I'm talking about. Now, Chaim Sofer very obliquely and very delicately refers to the mitzvah Hasarim and refers to um, uh, to what what uh, the what uh, the Yavetz what Yavetz Emden wrote. And again, seems to give his tacit approval, but of course doesn't want to come out fully against the Zahar. It achieved canonical, a vaunted canonical status among many uh, Jewish uh, circles, therefore wasn't willing to write an all-out uh, attack against it, but was willing to reference the fact that one of the great rabbis of the previous generation, Yaakov Emden, did. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to stop the screen and stop the share and stop the lecture, bring you all back in. Um, we have seven minutes officially on the clock, but I'm willing to stay later and answer questions, etc. This is on one foot the rise of the Zohar, its acceptance across much of the Jewish world, and also the rise of very important voices expressing skepticism against the claims of the Zohar, its authenticity, its antiquity, and its authority. Okay. Wow, thank you so much. And if, if anyone has any questions, comments, they can unmute, raise their hand, uh, type in the comments. Has anyone... Uh... Simon? Uh, yeah, I was intrigued by what you said about the Zohar's popularity being connected to the um, catastrophe of the expulsion from Spain. Sure. I was wondering if there's a parallel to that in our own times, if the reason why there seems to be a renaissance of interest in Kabbalah it is in part a reaction to the, the Holocaust and other events of the 20th century. Uh, okay, so... I guess I'm sure I wrote about that as as well, he was, of course, at that period. So, firstly, Gershom was um was very much Gershom a very important twentieth century Kabbalah was very much part of it. You, firstly, let me let me state that you very accurately diagnosed an uh, or, or an issue, or you put your finger on a phenomenon in the last half century in Jewish life, which is the extraordinary renaissance of the Kabbalah and specifically the Zohar. Right? If you go back to really the time, until the time of the Second World War, even until the 50s, 60s, you'll find the Zohar and Kabbalah as something which is studied by a very small portion of people in cloistered circles in yeshivot, in, you know, hole in the wall yeshivot in Jerusalem or wherever else. And nowadays you find books on Kabbalah everywhere. You find it on every bookshelf and you find it taught in yeshivot and you find it being translated by major presses and you find it being sold and you find lectures on the subject. Um, it's a tremendous phenomenon. Why exactly that is, is a little bit of, I mean, I'm sure you know, there are many who can theorize. It really does track with a general rediscovery of sort of spiritual new agey ideas generally in the world. Um, I think that that is, um, you know, that's definitely part of it. And within religion uh, in general and the sort of incursion of Eastern style, meditational yoga-like religions into the West, that's definitely part of it. And certainly this is part of the story in North America. Um, it's also part of the story that. That you know, yes, maybe the the satisfy the more satisfying perhaps theodicy of the czar might 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 play a part of it. It's also definitely part, I think, of the Zionist revival. And I think I, I remember Arthur Green uh, mentioning this once in, in some lecture, which is that you know the part of the Zion part of the return the Zionist return uh, to Israel, and the reflowering of Jewish culture, uh, spearheaded by people like Achada Am and Chaim Nachum Bialik and Gershom Shalom and people like that, was a rediscovery of of the full gamut of Jewish texts. Of reading Midrashim and Agadot and, and reading now the Zohar and reading um, you know medieval Jewish poetry and things that had been neglected for centuries by the mainstream um, suddenly became of great currency among the Jews and among Jewish states and therefore you know, I, you know that's certainly a phenomenon we see and I think that's also part of it but it's likely a confluence of many factors. Anyone else? We have in the chat it's a related question I believe. Why do you think the Zohar was accepted to such an extent at that time in Jewish history? 
sort of related? I mean, it is it is related. As I said, okay, so, so yes, why is it accepted post-Spanish expulsion? So I'll, I'll very briefly recapitulate uh, some of what I said, which is that it was, again, a variety of factors. One was simply the expulsion of the people. That was the Spanish scholars themselves suddenly found themselves in Jewish uh, corners all over the world. There is the fact that soon afterwards, I mean, the, the advent of printing by the mid-16th century, that was also a very important uh, part. There's Sholem's thesis, which is that the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah of the Zohar, and specifically the school of the Ari Yitzhak Luria, with its theology of Shever and Tikkun, this notion that actually from the very beginning, there was this, this catastrophe in among the spherotic, among the supernal realms, the spherotic realms, and that is the duty of people to, to um, affect a rectification below, such that there'll be a rectification above, and, and basically bring the Messiah that way. Um, and, and that, again, according to Shalom, that those two events are intimately linked. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, some have, uh, some have uh, doubted that. Um, and also, there is a possibility, and this is, I think, again, I think more of Arthur Green's works is his introduction to the Tsar by, uh, by Stanford University Press, a very good introduction, um, which she, in which he says that um, it's also possible that people, that the, the new lands in which people found themselves, um, namely the Ottoman Empire, namely Eastern Europe. Um, and other areas were much more conducive to a mystical, uh, non-rational form of, of religion. And that, that sort of tied more to the sort of the, the, strains, the strains of religion that were going on elsewhere in the world. Um, and also this also, importantly, um, coincides with the decline of rationalist philosophy. Uh, in other words, the, the, the 15th, 16th century was the tail end, in fact, the, the, the very end, the complete decline of rationalist philosophy, both in Judaism and also to a certain degree in Islam and Christianity as well. Um, and that those two things coincided. Now, to ask which is the chicken, which is the egg, did rationalist philosophy decline because of the rise of Kabbalah or vice versa is not so easy to answer. But but nonetheless, those two factors are, are intimately intertwined. Um, Shmuley, how much is the extent of Kabbalah and Haqqa Rizal Shukran? I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question because that's a question for someone who knows the broad halakh that's a question for those for an expert in, in halakhic texts okay um and i th- think that's that's fair i, I would you know uh, point to that there are some good uh there's a book i have on my shelf um by boaz hus called uh, the zohar reception and impact uh, uh the zohar yes reception and impact in which he goes through a little bit of this there, there is some writings i'm aware of on the subject um what i do know is that yosef caro did more than anyone else to bridge the worlds, the general worlds of Halakha and Kabbalah, especially because Reza Kara was also the author of a quite extraordinary mystical diary called Magid Mesharim, in which he claimed to be um, visited, visited by a Magid, which is a sort of um, angelic tutor, I would suppose, at night, who used to tell him things and tell him secrets, uh, who identified himself as, as he called himself, Mishnah, the, the Mishnah, that's why it's called, um, uh, uh, um, well, well, anyway, Magid Mesharim, um, and, and so, and, and therefore, he greatly legitimized, um, to a certain degree, Kabbalah among halachic scholars. Um, and in fact, so much so that the, the book that I spoke about last time and I'll speak about next week as well, which is Shadal's great work of, of Kabbalah skepticism called the Kuhachachumata Kabbalah, the last sticking point that they discuss is Yosef Kara, because it's very difficult for, it's not so difficult to, um, to discount Moshe de Leon. For, for, let's say, a Jew who believes in the regular canonical text, it's not so difficult even to discount someone like Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, because Rabbi Yitzhak Luria didn't write any halachic text and didn't write any great works of Jewish thought or whatever it is. However, it's very difficult to turn around and say Rabbi Yosef Kara was fundamentally deceived about the nature of the Kabbalah. And that is a sticking point among um, Kabbalah skeptics until this day, which proves very difficult to dislodge. Um, uh, um, 
with the, right this is the final comment by sk over here um Yes, the, the one of the great um, issues of Kabbalah versus philosophy, again, explored at length by Shadal, which I'll talk about a bit more next week, is which is which is more dangerous, or put it better, which which takes Judaism too far afield in different directions, right? In other words, the, the philosophers will say, look, or, or let me put it this way, both philosophy and Kabbalah have um, have their system relies upon saying the exoteric text, the, the Torah that we have, is merely a garb, or merely, it is an outer shell of an inner truth, and that inner truth is something esoteric which has been passed down the generations, and here I'm revealing it to you. For the philosophers, it is the truths of Aristotelian philosophy, um, that's what, you know, that's essentially the Moranavuchim is, it's to explain the, the philosophical core at the heart of the, of the biblical texts, um, whereas for, for, the, for the Zohar and the Kabbalists, it is Kabbalah, it is the secrets of the esoteric secrets of the Kabbalah and the SS Firoz, etc. And that is the core around which the uh, the exoteric texts are, are merely a gab. Now the question then becomes, um, okay, so if you're forced to choose which one, which one pushes Judaism too far afield? Right? Which one is is the more legitimate reinterpretation of, of, of Jewish texts as they stand? And, and again, this will be differed upon by partisans of each of the two schools of thought. And of course, there's a middle school of thought, um, which sort of rejects both, um, or at least minimizes both. People like, you know, the Khatam Sofer and the Shimshar Hirsch and other and people like that, who would say, listen, Kabbalah is for the few skeptics, and, and maybe we can, the Rambam could have his philosophy, but actually the main core of Judaism is just the Halachi text. It is the plain text meaning of the Chumash, is the plain text meaning of the Gemara, and we shouldn't spend too much of our time and energy trying to imagine what might be hidden in with deep within the recesses of this uh, particular ecosystem be it kabbalistic or philosophical any final uh, points questions is there any other examples of um, uh, philosophies or books or things that had such a widespread and managed to penetrate halakha as well I meaning not just managed to capture the minds, but also have such an effect on halakha? Um, difficult to point to a specific halakhic book. What I would say is that the dogmatic statement specifically of Maimonides did. Um, and this is, of course, the famous argument between the Rambam and the Ra'avad on the incorporeality of God. If you open the Mishnah Torah to Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah, you'll find Maimonides' famous statement. Anyone who says that God has any physical component whatsoever is a heretic. He is... Uh, considered outside the camp, he's he's, he's um, you know, holds heretical views. Whereas the uh, the Ra'avad, the, the, who, who comments there, says, actually, you know, he basically expresses his outrage and says, Rabin Vitovim Mimenu, many greater than him have in fact held this. He, 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 this is evidence that many uh, uh, you know senior, let's say, scholars of the medieval period at least thought there was a possibility that God had some kind of, of, of corporeal uh, existence. Um, having said that, Maimonides seems to have won on that one. And therefore, Maimonides' dogmatic assertions have made their way sort of into halakhic text, which is that, till nowadays, you ask most, most halakhic authorities, what do you do with a Jew who denies Torah Min Shemaim or denies uh, that God doesn't have a body? And they'll say, Apikoros, they'll say, uh, you know, they belong outside the orthodox camp. Um with regard to a specific book of philosophy, I, I can't think of any, but um, perhaps it might strike me in the middle of the night and I'll give you a ring. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for coming, everyone. Thank you so much, Hakam. So, Happy birthday. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for next week when we'll have part two. Uh, that's over, everyone. Thank you.